are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I am an internationally certified coach specializing in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. And my website is charliejetcoaching.com. Well, we have a terrific guest today. Jim Ginsberg is the founder and president of Sidi Records, a classical label he launched in 1989 while he was an entering law student at the University of Chicago. Sidi is focused on recording classical music produced by artists and composers in Chicago. Jim's label has produced 21 Grammy Award nominations and seven Grammy Award winners and was nominated for, and Jim was nominated for Producer of the Year Classical. And that happened in 2019. In 2009, the Chicago Tribune named Jim a Chicagoan of the Year in the Arts, writing, let's hear it for Jim Ginsburg. He's one of the last independent entrepreneurs in classical recording, a man who has stuck to his artistic vision and made a success of it at a time of market shrinkage and industry downsizing. It was quite a challenge for a young law student to leave law school in a promising career to pursue with great success an interest which was his real love, classical music. So welcome, Jim, to It's All About Skills. Thanks, Charlie, it's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And let's start by uh, some background. You obviously have a great love for music especially classical music. Uh, tell, tell us what was the source of this love? Um, I actually don't know because it happened so young. Um, the way my mother will, will tell the story or would tell the story is uh, she would always say, James was a lively child, which meant uh, hyperactive. Um, I tended to run around like a Tasmanian devil except that mother noticed that when they put classical music on the phonograph, I stopped running around like a crazy man and actually sat up and listened. <laughs> so, um, and this, I mean, this is, we're talking toddler here. So they started taking me, my parents to all kinds of concerts around town in New York where I grew up, starting with the Little Orchestra Society, uh, which happened to be at Hunter College right across the street from our apartment building. So that was convenient and Light Opera of Manhattan, which did the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's and the New York Philharmonic Young People's Concerts, which back then were conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. Um, and very soon after that, I graduated to the New York City Opera and the Met uh, and just devoured all of it. Started, you know, listen, listen through my parents' record collection and by the age of seven was collecting records of my own. So it just it just kind of happened that way. Clearly, there was something in me that 
uh, had a real um, affinity for this music. Wow, and so it really started at an early age. And let, tell us a little bit about your experience when you were a student at the University of Chicago. Well, you mean my musical experience? Uh, I, the, you know, everybody I think in college likes to get into extracurricular activities, and I made a beeline for the radio station, which was uh, WHBK, still is, uh, and it's a mixed format station, which meant uh, there were slots for classical music in the afternoons, and I uh, immediately introduced myself to the uh, administration there, the student administration, and got myself a show and started uh, spinning records as, as they say. And it was, and that was a very good thing because one of the other people, a couple of years ahead of me in school who was at WHBK, both as classical announcer and as the station's uh, engineer was a fellow named Bill Malone, uh, who was an amazingly talented broadcast and recording engineer. And if I hadn't met Bill, I probably would not have gotten into the career I got into. So that was, pretty crucial. Um, I eventually uh, ended up running the classical format at uh, WHPK. Uh, so being in charge of all the other announcers playing classical music, I was also um, introduced the station to compact discs because I got, was a very early adopter of, the, of that medium. And I got my own player in 1984. And I used to joke that I would bring my portable CD player over to the station that for my first, I did uh, stay down campus both summers of both my uh, freshman and, and sophomore years. And fresh the um, summer between my first two years, I would bring what I like to joke was my portable CD player, which was of course weighed about 30 pounds and was about two feet wide. <laughs> but I would bring, I would literally bring it a, a mile from, uh, from my apartment to on a luggage cart <laughs> to to uh, to the station, and Bill and I would set it up and uh, and actually play CDs for the first time on that station. So that was great fun. Um, and uh, also during my college years, I got to work for Nonsuch Records uh, between my junior and senior years of college in New York, which was an amazing label to work for, and learn and got to see pretty much all areas of the classical biz, music business, uh, record business through them. I also started writing reviews for the American Record Guide magazine. So these were all very formative experiences during my college years. Wow, and now that experience uh, led you to leave a potential career in law where you were surrounded by lawyers as a child during your second year at the University of Chicago Law School. So tell us about making that decision and it's, impact upon you and your family? Well, the uh, actually preceded uh, actually, um, going to law, my start at law school, what happened was after college, I went back to New York um, where I'd grown up, although I spent my high school years in Washington, DC, uh, because as my father liked to say, my mother got a good job. Uh, but um, I went back to New York, did a little work in music PR, mostly worked as a paralegal, made the decision to uh, at least tentatively to go into the family business. But at the same time, I was bitten by this bug of, you know, um, mainly through the re reviewing those records for American Record Guide, because something I started to notice was there was a huge difference um, between recordings that were well-produced and recordings that weren't so well-produced. And that often made the biggest difference of all, even more so than sometimes the artists themselves. 
So I had my uh, the thought that with my experiences uh, that I've had in the record business, including my summer at Nonsuch, uh, and with my knowledge of a wonderful recording engineer, that I could potentially produce good recordings. And then I also realized something else, that all the wonderful Chicago artists uh, that I would hear in college here in Chicago uh, in live concerts and on those frequent on-air live from the studio broadcast at WFMT, none of their recordings were findable in record stores. You know, this and you know, growing up in New York, this was very alien to me because you know, in New York, you go to a concert, um, you know, you go to the record store the next day, and there's a huge selection of recordings by whatever artist uh, you were just heard in concert. But in Chicago, the only Chicago music that was really on the classical side uh, being recorded was uh, the Chicago Symphony under George Schulte in the, this is in the late 1980s. And so if I were to hear Kenneth Dimitri Paperno play uh, a concert uh, live from the studio concert uh, on WFMT, I would not find any records by him in the record store. Uh, if I were to hear David Schrader performing um, with one of the many groups he performed with uh, in those days. Same thing. If I were to hear a piece by Easley Blackwood or or, or performance, same thing. There was there was no documentation of these things happening on recordings. So I had this idea that well maybe I should do that documenting. And I mentioned Bill Malone. He was working at WFMT part-time at this point. So I called him up and told him my interest in potentially producing recordings. And at, the first question came, you know, that came to mind is, okay, who do I record first? And so Bill surreptitiously made copies of some of those on-air broadcast tapes from WFMT and sent them to me to listen to. And pretty quickly I uh, settled on Dmitry Paperno, the Russian, wonderful Russian emigre pianist who, uh, uh, and a lot of these artists, I should note, were not great self-promoters. So that's one reason they weren't being recorded as much, I suppose. I think it's very different, you know, seeing them than New York, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of the artists in New York are more career-minded, um, at least at this stage. So I actually called Paperno, who I who actually knew a little bit from my, in my college days, and expressed my interest in making recordings with him and took him, me, him a while to realize I was serious about it. But once he did, uh, uh, he was interested because he had, it's interesting, he, he was an um, important artist in the Soviet Union, made a number of recordings for the Melodia record label um, before emigrating in 1977. When he first came here, Norm Pellegrini produced a couple of LPs uh, of him uh, for Musical Heritage Society. And then when I came along over a decade later, he hadn't done anything since on records, again, because he's not a self-promoter. But I convinced him uh, to come back into the studio and we made our first recording for Sadie in 1989. Uh, Dimitri Paperno plays Russian piano music. And the recording actually came as so I produced this the summer before starting law school. Um, and the recording actually came out that fall right as I was entering law school. And then for a while I was, I was a law student, but at the same time, I after a year of law school, instead of taking a summer job with a law firm like a normal law student would, I took time off and produced some more recordings, uh, adding uh, e Easily Blackwood and David Schrader to the uh, to the roster of Sadie artists. And then I came back uh, after the summer, did one quarter, and decided to take a leave of absence to produce a couple more recordings. And then after one more quarter, I took another leave of absence, which technically I'm still on. 
Uh, <laughs> and at that point, I decided to make the label a full a full time venture. So this is now, I guess, 1991, and I've turned Sadie into my full time um, occupation. Wow, you were you were entering a career in which you just absolutely loved the music, knew a lot about it, but you didn't really have the skills of an entrepreneur. So that was giving you some fears and anxiety, and it also probably had a uh, impact on your family of lawyers, you venturing out into the world of music. Well, at the beginning, I funded the label's productions on a shoestring budget from my own savings, which weren't huge, uh, which is one reason why our early recordings were pretty small scale. In fact, nine of the first 10 were solo keyboard. Uh, there's one small chamber music recording in, in that first group. Um, but I always had in, in the back of my mind the idea that what I was doing was really an artistic enterprise and had the potential uh, to be a nonprofit. And that was solidified for me uh, through uh, some happy coincidences. Um, in 1991-92, it was uh, the University of Chicago and Chicago Symphony Orchestra were both reaching their centennials. And the symphony had the idea to commit to celebrate this, uh, these co-centennials by commissioning the three uh, most significant composers at the University of Chicago to write pieces for the orchestra that they could play uh, during this time. And one of those was Easley Blackwood, who we'd already been working with both as a pianist and a composer. And so the symphony commissioned his fifth, Blackwood's Fifth Symphony, which was uh, conducted by James DePriest over a series of six concerts, which is very unusual. Usually a, a series with a CSO is three concerts, maybe four. But we got lucky uh, that this was on six different series. And I talked to Henry Fogel, who was the president of the Chicago Symphony at the time, and expressed interest in, the, in recording this piece. And Henry agreed to put up the money for WFMT, which would normally record just two of the concerts and basically splice between the coughs on reel to reel in those days. Um, and that's what would go on the air and that would be, you know, that's, that would be it. But we, um, but he agreed to have the, uh, have the FMT engineer, um, uh, Mitch, who's Mitch Heller back then, record all six concerts. And the deal was we couldn't actually do anything with it until the orchestra got paid for the recording rights. And as you can imagine with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, that costs a lot of money, even for a 25 minute piece. So I watched as the symphony went through the process of raising money uh, for this uh, from uh, foundations, government, uh, individual donors. And watching this, I said, well, with our focus on local musicians, there's absolutely no reason I shouldn't be raising money directly for our operations. I happen to know Herman Krawitz, the president of New World Records, which was the one example I knew of, of a nonprofit classical label. So I asked him, Herman, how do you make a nonprofit classical label? And he was very nice enough to, uh, to give me basically a one-on-one -on -one tutorial and explain the process. Um, and as far as the, you know, the tax side of not-for-profit, I didn't have to worry because uh, I happen to know a really, really good tax lawyer. <laughs> you certainly did. Uh, who of course was my father. Um, so between all those um, mentors, I was able to structure, restructure CD as a nonprofit. And Henry Fogel happily agreed to be on my board, which gave us instant credibility in the Chicago music community. 
and made it possible for us to start raising money right away for our mission of recording Chicago artists. And so at the end of um, 1993, we uh, we released this recording of Easley Blackwood's Fifth Symphony coupled with the his um, first symphony, which was the piece that really put him on the map as a composer, which we were licensing from RCA. Um, so I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. Turn the label nonprofit officially January 1, 1994. And our first recording actually release as a nonprofit was with the Vermeer Quartet. So uh, it was a pretty auspicious time for the label. Wow, wow. As you look back and uh, you had plunged into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, and, uh, and recordings, uh, what were the major challenges you, you faced as a young person uh, in terms of the skills that you needed to do that? Uh, what were some of those challenges and how did you meet those challenges? Well, let's see, on the artistic side, I mean, although I studied piano for 13 years, I would not consider myself personally a musician. And most, most uh, music producers are actual performers or at least were at some point in their career. Uh, so, so that was a bit of a challenge to be able to uh, produce music without, you know, being a real performer myself, but uh, I've always, I've, I've, I like to say that I gave up the piano for the digital editor as my instrument because um, I'm, I'm, I think I, it's fair to say I'm very good at taking other people's performances and, and in the process of recording sessions, uh, really help them uh, achieve their ideal as performers, you know, uh, really come out with their ideal statement of what they're trying to produce musically, which is, you know, something you can do in recording sessions is very different from a live concert and, or a performance and nothing will ever take away live performances as uh, coming out of this pandemic. I think we all realize how much we miss that. But at the same time, you can achieve a very different kind of result. Um, uh, one, uh, I guess one term is sometimes used as a reference performance uh, through, uh, through recording. And I, I seem to have a good aptitude for that. Uh, so that was one thing. Um, that, and you know, it, it's, there's that theory about 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. Uh, and I certainly spent more than 10,000 hours listening to musicians play and specifically listening to recordings. So I think that was part of what gave me that aptitude, but then learning all the other sides of the business, you know, how to market recordings, um, happened to connect with a very good publicist, Nat Silverman, very early in, in the label's history. I think that helped a lot. And then the, then the financial side, and it was, uh, you know, it was uh, not completely, uh, uh, what should I say, untense conversation when I came to my parents and said, okay, I want to make this my full-time work and, and turn this label nonprofit to do it. And, uh, you know, went through the whole, um, uh, well, process, you know, talking to my, my father, well, actually, I should be, I, I should back up. I am, and first, first, there was the conversation about making it a full-time venture, and then later about turning it nonprofit, and there was some trepidation, I, I would say, uh, there, although this was the early 90s when uh, CDs were selling pretty well, so while it wasn't making money uh, at the beginning, uh, when it was still a sole proprietorship, it wasn't losing tons either. Um, but it was clear that it was not going to be sustainable, and, and certainly I was not going to be able to, to expand into other parts of the repertory, like, like symphonic works, choral works, even operas, 
without uh, um, more promising funding mechanisms. So, the, so that's when the when the uh, process of turning the label not for profit really was key to being able to sustain it. Um, and I learned a lot about uh, about things like uh, forming a board and nonprofit management and 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 the rest. But then the key was, as you said, I was doing something I loved. So the um, the impetus uh, uh, was there to to learn uh, all the all those skills so that I could continue to do the work that I loved. Wow. And uh, certainly the fundraising was quite a challenge. Um, yes, although I will say uh, my, my father turned into my fundraiser in chief in the beginning. Um, and that was hugely helpful because uh, uh, he certainly knew a lot of people who had the wherewithal to help fund and, and happily a lot of the people he knew also really loved music. So that helped, like I said, having Henry Fogel on my board also really helped in terms of uh, connecting with, with the Chicago community. But uh, I was able to actually coast along on, 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 on with those kind of help for, for a long time. Uh, after my father passed away was another challenge because then I no longer had my chief fundraiser. And the question was, how could I sustain this at the level and, uh, that we were doing things uh, without that? And we commissioned, We worked with a company called Campbell and Company to do a, um, a what they call a capacity survey to see whether there was potential for more fundraising. And what they found is that there was a lot of the Chicago philanthropic, uh, especially musical philanthropic community that's, even though they would hear our recordings all the time on WFMT, for example, they hadn't made that connection. They didn't know that there was this label here devoted exclusively to Chicago artists uh, that was a not-for-profit. And, uh, and the, the, what they determined was that if we did get the word out better, there was a huge potential for, for funding that we had not tapped yet. And that turned out to be right. So, uh, so that was about... Uh, uh, over 10 years ago now um, that we made that transition and and ended up raising a lot more money than we ever had before. And I hired my I hired a full-time development director, uh, Julie Polanski, who's been wonderful. Um, and we increased our grant writing and our outreach, especially to individual donors. And we started doing a uh, an annual gala which actually uh, raises about a third of our uh, contributed revenue every year now. Um, and it's made such a huge difference. So, so, I, so as much as at, the, at one point that looked like, uh, uh, you know, it was very fraught in terms of, uh, am I gonna be able to sustain this? Uh, it actually turned out to be uh, not only could I, but we were able to sustain it at an even higher level and increase the number of productions we do, which is a good thing because the demand from the music community uh, has only gotten greater uh, over the years. And I think you really saw that, you know, during this pandemic, because this was really the only way for artists to connect with listeners on, on that level. Yes, there, there, there have been performances online and whatnot, but uh, the artists will be the first to tell you that the quality of, you know, of those uh, online performances are not you know what they ultimately want to be represented by and having really well-produced 
uh, audiophile recordings as their calling card was really key to them, uh, especially getting through this pandemic. Wow. Jim, uh, looking back, when did you first have that feeling of success? I know in the startup times where you feel anxiety and that sort of stuff, when is, what was that first feeling of, I did it? Interesting. Um, well, I mean, I think it came in stages. I mean, the, the first recording was was one, and the and the uh, excellent reviews that it, that it uh, garnered right away. Uh, that was you know that was one sign of success right there. Um, and as I mentioned, that getting to record with the Chicago Symphony yeah. uh, very early in our life as a label that was definitely another one. Uh, and then. You know, the beginning when I started this, I reached out to the artists I knew, um, like um, Paperno and Easley Blackwood, excuse me, Mark, and and David Trader, and and uh, and but then very quickly, artists started hearing about what we were doing and started coming to me, yeah. and so and that was really you know what I wanted because this label exists really as a resource for these Chicago artists. So as we attracted the attention of artists like uh, the Vermeer Quartet, as I mentioned, and a very young Rachel Barden Pine, uh, violinist, and, and also uh, uh, violinist Jennifer Coe is another artist who started recording with us very early in her, uh, in her career. Um, that, that I think was another sign of success. And then there were some recordings that, that really made a big impact. Uh, among others, our first opera recording with the Chicago Opera Theater, which was Giancarlo Minotti's The Medium, which is an opera that's hugely popular. It's um, performed, oh, probably a dozen times at least every year around the country. Um, and yet when, uh, when we started talking to the Chicago Opera Theater about taking a production they had done in the uh, early 90s and turning it into a recording in, later in the 90s, um, it actually hadn't been recorded uh, since 1970. It was recorded on LP and had never been on CD. And so when our recording came out, uh, which also happened to feature great singers like Joyce Castle and Patrice Michaels, uh, whose name was Patrice Michaels Betty back then, um, that garnered a huge amount of attention and that became one of our best-selling recordings right away. Rachel Barden Pine's recordings were also bestsellers and also led to our second opportunity to record with the Chicago Symphony, um, that, uh, her doing the Brahms and concerto and the concerto by Joseph Joachim, the violinist for whom Brahms wrote his concerto. Uh, so, and, and that for a long time was our best-selling recording. And that recordings like that really put us on the map. And that was a, remember that time, this is in the early 2000s, we just had a string of really, I think, top uh, recordings that really got noticed. We did our second opera recording with Chicago Opera Theater, which was the world premiere of Robert Kirka's The Good Soldier Schweik, which was based on the production that COT had just, had just done. Um, we did our first recording with the Grant Park Orchestra, which also happened to uh, be the first time the new organ in Orchestra Hall got recorded. This was an album of uh, American Works for Organ and Orchestra with David Schrader as the organist, some absolutely spectacular audiophile pieces there. Um, and then, uh, oh, and then Patrice Michaels, uh, her groundbreaking project, Divas of Mozart's Day, which looked at repertoire of the very late 
18th century through the eyes of the singers and the composers who wrote for them, not just Mozart, but Salieri and Martini Soler and Cimarosa. Um, and, and I think that you know, garnered a lot of interest. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, and capped it off that uh, period uh, with, our, with the Rachel Barden Pine recording with the Chicago Symphony, which was also our first Grammy nominee. This is now 2003. And I'm particularly proud that it was nominated for Best Engineered Classical Recording, yeah. a category we've been nominated in uh, many times. Wow. Well, speaking of Grammys, what are some of the other Grammy winners that you've had? Well, the, the also actually right around this time, the other recording I should have mentioned was our first recording with Eighth Blackbird, the uh, contemporary music sextet. Uh, while that one wasn't nominated for a Grammy, uh, three recordings later, um, they they did get nominated and won. In fact, they actually won Grammys for four albums in a row. Wow! <laughs> with us. Well, I love uh, Eighth Blackbird, as you know. Yeah. So so Eighth Blackbird, uh, Third Coast Percussion is also. Uh, uh, won a Grammy for us for their first CD release. Uh, Eve Blackbird, like so many of our artists, actually um, had their recording debuts on CD. You know, Pacifica Quartet is another one. Yeah. Um, in the case of Third Coast, they had actually been recording with other labels for probably 10 years without getting quite the kind of attention that their first recording for us, uh, which was their recording of music of Steve Reich, got in that one. In fact, not only won a Grammy, but they got to perform at the Grammys wow. uh, um, um, before they, their win was announced. And most recently, uh, this year, uh, the first time an album that I personally produced won a Grammy, and this was with the Pacifica Quartet. And actually, they had some pretty stiff competition in, uh, uh, as far as the nominees in the chamber music category, because also nominated were Third Coast Percussion's <laughs> latest album, and on a different label, for us, and on a different label, uh, Dover Quartet, which is another Sadie artist, had one of their albums nominated in the same category. Um, so, yeah, we've actually had a lot of success, I have to say, in that chamber music uh, category. Both, um, both nominees and, and winners. And of course, it was really gratifying that the one I produced with the uh, Pacifica Quartet uh, uh, actually won, won the award uh, this year. Wow, you know, your initial dream of uh, exposing local Chicago artists to the recording world really, really came to fruition with the, the Black Eighth Blackbird winning Third Coast Percussion and that sort of mm -hmm. thing being really recognized as local Chicago uh, contemporary classic uh, artist. When you, what's the process that you go through when you uh, are deciding to record a particular artist or ensemble? You know, what's what's your criteria for making a let's record that decision? Well, I, I you know, I, I started this from the point of view of as a listener and collector. My motto was. Uh, I wanted to make recordings in addition to being with Chicago artists that, that are actually recordings I would personally want to buy. So I was in, um, so that meant I was tended to be more interested in projects that explored areas of the repertoire that maybe weren't already well covered in my personal record collection. I, and then that worked actually worked really well uh, for these artists because these Chicago artists tend to be explorers and, and really interested in, in, in uh, delving into different um, sides of the repertoire. And, and I'm very proud that uh, the label has um, produced well over the 300 world premiere recordings of, of pieces. That is obviously, we only have 200 plus in our catalog albums, but on those albums, 
over 300 pieces, our world premieres, uh, not just new works, although we do a lot of new works and we work with one of part of our mission is, of course, is contemporary Chicago composers, um, but a lot of discoveries through these wonderful artists who are dis who discover this this great repertoire and want to bring it to the world. So that kind that uh, is definitely one um, criterion. Uh, the I mean, the, the other thing is the artists themselves, obviously, uh, the, the quality of the performances is key. Uh, and more and more, we've been uh, where we've been about helping artists with their careers. So uh, we're really looking for artists who have career or at least career potential and potential that can be enhanced by the recordings they're making for us. Uh, and there's nothing more gratifying to me than when an artist says um, that uh, as a, here's a great example, Will Liverman, we just uh, uh, released his first album on CD um, uh, the beginning of this year in February, uh, Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers, uh, which is a wide-ranging program, including a premiere of a piece he commissioned from Chicago composer Shauna Pebolo. Um, uh, this, got, this album got so much attention that it actually debuted at number one on the Billboard classical chart. Wow. Uh, and Will, is, Will told me at one point, um, I, I guess before the pandemic, he was flirting with the idea. Uh, I should mention that Will um, uh, came through Whedon College and uh, and the Ryan Opera Center. In fact, he was he's a baritone. He was actually the youngest ever accepted into the Ryan Opera Center program at Lyric Opera. Um, and at one point, so he had been based here, but at one point, he was flirting with the idea of relocating uh, himself to Philadelphia. Uh, and he ended up not doing that. He ended up staying in Chicago and he cited the ability to work with Sadie Records as one of the reasons he stayed in Chicago. So th there is nothing more gratifying to me th than that. And also then there's also the personal stories of artists uh, of how their recordings have um, enhanced their careers. Obviously the Grammy wins uh, and nominations have helped our artists a lot. Stacey Garrop, a composer we've worked with a lot, credits uh, the amount of attention her music got through her early CD recordings for getting her enough commissions that she was able to leave her teaching job and become a full-time uh, freelance composer. Uh, Rachel Barden-Pine has quite a few stories uh, she's told, including um, that her she that she got her Guarneri del Gesù violin because of her work with CD, because of a donor who was interested in, in her Brahms Joachim project, initially loaned the violin to her for that recording project and ended up liking the recording so much that he said she could keep it on permanent loan. Also her wonderful um, period instrument trio, uh, Trio Settecento, which is really one of the marquee Baroque chamber groups in the world was formed as a result of making a CD recording. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and she likes to tell that story that initially it was to she formed this group um, uh, without it didn't even have that name just to do the Handel Violin Sonata as her first album for CD. And people started asking her when her trio was going to perform in their area. And she said, my trio? Oh, my trio. Mm -hmm. And then so then they officially formed as a performing uh, touring trio and have gone on to make uh, numerous recordings under the name Trio Settecento since. So. You know, stories like that or her, the connections she's made with certain conductors through our recordings that end up resulting in her making more recordings with those conductors on other labels. You know, the, 
nothing can make me happier than than seeing our artists benefit like that from our recordings. Wow. Well, well, you know, you told us earlier about your experience of growing up in a family that uh, was not only legal, it was uh, very musical. Mm -hmm. And uh, you live in a family now that's very musical. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us about your, and you mentioned Patrice, so tell us about Patrice Michaels and uh, her involvement in the opera. First of all, Patrice is your spouse. Yes, as a spouse of 10 years now, wow. uh, going, on, going on 11 this, this fall. Um, yeah, uh, well, I got to know Patrice initially uh, through the Rembrandt Chamber Players, which was the first, among, sorry, was the first uh, chamber ensemble we re recorded. Um, and they were doing an album of 20th century pieces that included harpsichord in the, in the instrumentation because David Schrader was one of their members. And it was mostly purely instrumental works, but they said, you know, there's this uh, piece by Dominic Argento that we'd really like to do. And we have this wonderful soprano who sings it with us. And so I went to the uh, concert where they played these six Elizabethan songs of Argento with the singer who greatly impressed me in the concert. And I said, sure, absolutely. Let's include that on the album. Um, but it was really at those recording sessions uh, at the end, I think it was at the end of 1991 that I really got to know Patrice and was just gobsmacked by her talent. And yeah, you know, I, I used to say back then of all the artists we recorded, the the one art, the artist whose career was least commensurate with her talent was Patrice. Uh, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but I was very happy to say, to be able to record an artist of that, of that caliber. Um, and so after we did these sessions with the Rembrandt chamber players, I, I approached her and said, you know, I would love if you wanted to do a solo, solo recital album, I'm all ears. And took her a while to, uh, to realize that this was a genuine offer. Uh, but once she did, uh, we came up with this wonderful program called, or she, I say, she really came up with this program called Songs of the Romantic Age, which ended up being 25 songs by 25 different composers in seven different languages. Uh, it's a really wide ranging program and just absolutely delightful music and performances. Mm -hmm. And that became the uh, beginning of a string of albums with her both solo recitals like that. Uh, she did albums with the Chicago Broke Ensemble, yet another period instrument group in Chicago that David Schrader was a uh, member of. Uh, and those, uh, the, um, the medium, the opera recording I mentioned, which was based on a COT production that Patrice uh, had been in. Um, and, you know, over the years, we worked as colleagues and friends, uh, but but eventually it became something more than that. Uh, it turned into a romance. And uh, so we were married uh, in uh, 2010. And um, one of the interesting things, uh, I, I mean, I, I knew her as a, as a singer. What I didn't know was she had a latent uh, career as a composer as well. She had actually studied under Dominic Argento at the University of Minnesota. Um, but had kind of given up composing to concentrate on her singing career. But um, a wonderful opportunity arose at my mother's 80th birthday. We, my sister and I thought a nice gift would be to commission three women composers uh, to write songs uh, based on, on texts um, concerning my mother. Yeah. In fact, two of them were actually 50th birthday tribute to, uh, 
tributes that people had written uh, for mom. Um, so uh, we um, uh, commissioned Stacy Garrup, who I've mentioned before, Vivian Fung, another composer who we'd worked with on, on a previous uh, CD album, and, and Patrice to write these songs. And Patrice wrote a song based on a uh, story that was written by, it's actually my father's secretary at, at, at his law firm in New York, who wrote this hilarious letter about, basically it was how she got converted. She, I should mention she was from Spain. So she was a, an, an immigrant. And the, the way she told it is um, this, strain, this strange lawyer in his shirt sleeves back then, you know, you weren't supposed to take your jacket off in the law firm, would, would show up at the typing pool and hand, him, hand her these pads of yellow legal paper, handwritten, handwritten uh, with stuff about gender-based discrimination, you know, what's this? Because my mother didn't, when she was teaching at Rutgers, didn't have any secretarial support. So my father enlisted the law, uh, the law firm secretary to, uh, to type up my mother's uh, briefs and, and writings uh, on this subject. And it's basically a conversion story to feminism through typing up these, uh, uh, these uh, handwritten, uh, uh, pads of paper and the, the, the punchline of the letter is R, uh, RBG converted me through typing. <laughs> and Patrice set this to music absolutely brilliantly and then had the idea, well, uh, that maybe this shouldn't just be one song about my mother, but there's probably a cycle in there. And in fact, there was. Uh, she ended up writing uh, a whole nine song cycle called The Long View, a portrait of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in nine songs which ended up being recorded on an album called The Notorious RBG in Song. Ah, I wonder uh, if and, we're gonna bring that name. Yeah, and that actually has led to, uh, Patrice has been getting commissions uh, to write other uh, pieces. Um, and so her career as a composer is now uh, burgeoning. And once again, I think Sadie Records can take some credit for that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, Jim, you know, as you look forward in, um, in the, you look in the future, What's your dream for the city label? Um, well, I mean, part of it is just uh, to uh, keep doing, you know, what we're doing, but I think expanding, uh, you know, I would love, you know, with, you know, if we have the funding support to increase the number of albums we put out each year and, you know, continue to be able to do large scale recordings, uh, which tend to be more expensive. Um, but there's, you know, there's such a, a demand for them. In fact, we get, uh, by my count, oh, at least five or six times as many proposals as we can, you know, actually put out recordings. Uh, and it's gotten to the point where uh, I no longer review these uh, my, uh, entirely myself. Uh, used to, I mean, the uh, early days of the label, I would get, you know, people would send in their recording ideas or I would you know, rec recognize our artists at concerts so who would then come to me with their ideas. But now we've actually had to formalize the process. If you go to our website uh, and scroll to the bottom, there's actually a button that says submit a proposal. And so that we use the same, so that we can compare apples to apples, we ask, ask the artists all to use the same form to submit their uh, recording proposals that talk about not just the repertoire, but what they're going to do with it, how it's going to help their careers, et cetera. Because that's, I mean, like I said, that's the most gratifying thing to me when I, besides that we put out wonderful recordings and win all these awards and then get the great reviews. When when these records recordings can actually be doc, I can document 
the uh, how they've helped our artists uh, in their careers uh, and legacies for the older artists. Um, um, right now, we're actually we're promoting very heavily this summer the legacy of a past Chicago composer, uh, Leo Sowerby, for example, a composer who used to be uh, the in, essentially composer in residence, the Chicago Symphony in the 1920s and 30s under Frederick Stock. And back then was actually the American composer most often performed by American orchestras. I mean, he was a huge deal. Um, and he still is, especially in the choral and organ world. And, and uh, he's kind of known as the dean of um, of, of um, American church composers because um, he turned his attention more and more to that venue. He was uh, organist and choir master at St. James Cathedral for uh, 35 years. But his symphonic and chamber repertory, I mean, it's, I would say more masterpieces than not. And we're bringing out a lot of these pieces this, this summer, for example. So, so if we can, I would say I'll be very gratified if we can get this composer the recognition that his music deserves. So that would be one example. Um, but anyway, I was starting to say we have this process now, and I actually have a committee of my board, which Henry Fogel is uh, chair of, uh, that helps me now review these proposals to make sure that I am not overlooking artists I, that I that I shouldn't be. Um, um, because, you know, with the limited number of releases we put out a year, usually it's eight, although we're, we're trying to increase that now. Um, you know, it's very important that we choose wisely and really bring out the music that uh, adds the most to the world, to the record catalog and does the most for these uh, Chicago artists to help them uh, build their careers. So that's really, I'd say the long-term is really seeing that our label is, has helped artists like the Pacifica Quartet and Eighth Blackbird and Third Coast Percussion and Will Liverman and Rachel Barden Pine just to really see that kind of artistic and career growth uh, that the label can be part and parcel of that. Well, that's wonderful. And it sounds like uh, the dream you had a long time ago has come true. And now you have the fun problem of a successful entrepreneur of taking what has been a very successful venture to even a greater scale. Exactly. Uh, Mary, we in Chicago are so proud of you, Jim, for, for what you've done, not only for you personally, but for, uh, for the Chicago artists uh, in general. And now, if somebody wants to support Sidi, how can they do it? We can't, we're not going to leave this without letting people know exactly how they can support you because uh, their support, you, you depend on their support. And so how do we do it? Well, the uh, easiest way is to go to cdrecords.org, which is our website, c-e-d-i-l-o-e-records.org. And there's a donate button uh, right there. If you want to learn a little bit more about us before uh, pulling that trigger, you can click uh, the button, uh, you know, the I think it's what the about tab, I guess it would be. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, right, on, right under our logo on the top left of the... Uh, website, there's a, an about tab and that takes you to our mission page so you can learn about what we do. Um, as I mentioned before, our annual gala is uh, accounts for about a third of our contributed revenue and uh, we're happy to report we will be back to an in-person gala this year. Last year's, of course, like everybody else's was online, but it will be Sunday, September 12th at um, 
our usual location, which is venue 610, 610 South Michigan Avenue, the home of the Spurtis Institute. There will be a concert featuring Sadie artists. Uh, the Lincoln Trio will perform. Uh, clarinetist Anthony McGill, another artist I should probably have mentioned at some point. Here's an artist who uh, uh, actually performed at Barack Obama's uh, inaugural um, and yet uh, had not made a, a, other than a self-release, had not made a commercially released recording before we made a recording with him and the Pacifica Quartet. And I'm very pleased to announce that we are reuniting them both for a re recording sessions this fall and on our gala, they will perform together as well, uh, uh, Anthony and the uh, uh, Pacifica Quartet. So you, those performances uh, uh, to look forward to as well as a absolutely delicious dinner uh, catered by the entertaining company. So if you care to join us on Sunday, September 12th, that would be another great way to uh, support our operations. Sunday, September 12th. And to yeah. your website, cdlife.org, right? Cdrecords.org. Cdrecords.org, okay. well. Jim, thank you so much for the gift that you've given to Chicago in City Records. City, and I really appreciate that. And thank you also for being our guest today on uh, It's All About Skills. Now, uh, as for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach. I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com. I want to thank all of you for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills. All about skills.